1: Sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at Shopify.com slash specialoffer. All lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer.
0: Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books. Hi, and welcome to Think About It. I'm the host, Uli Baer, and thank you for tuning in. We live in unprecedented times. You hear that almost every day. So I thought I'd do something a bit different on this podcast, something I haven't done before. I was very fortunate to be able to talk to Dune Arbus about her first novel, The Caretaker that's just been published by New Directions Books. The Caretaker is a strange, puzzling, enigmatic, and really wonderful book. So when I got the galleys, I read it, and then I read it again, completely absorbed into the story. And then I thought I would love to talk to the author, June Arbus, about her uh, idea for this book, what it meant to create this idea of a strange house museum in Manhattan that harbors a collection of things and objects that attain their meaning only by being in relation, and that has been bequeathed to a foundation by its mysterious mastermind, Dr. Morgan. But just listen to my conversation with Dune, who was willing to talk to me and hear me wonder and marvel at this book, which is strange, absorbing, mysterious, And just something you should pick up right now. It's published by New Directions Books on September 15th, 2020. It's Arbus's first novel. She's written several nonfiction books and a lot of journalism. And I was utterly mesmerized. Thank you for listening to Think About It. Uh, Hi, Dune. First of all, welcome to uh, Think About It. I'm so happy to have you on the show today and talk about your new novel.
1: Yes, I'm really pleased myself.
0: <laughs> so, <I'm, laughs> so That makes two of us. <laughs> I'm, I'm thrilled to be here on Zoom with uh, June Arbus. So your novel, The Caretaker, is coming out um, this week or so, early September. Um, we September all con- 15th. September 15th with New Directions. So congratulations, yes. first of all. Mm-hmm. And um, I was just completely taken in by this book, which takes you into a Sort of domestic space, a house museum in New York City um, that's managed by this caretaker of the title. And I was thinking about it while I was reading it. I read it three times. That we're all in these spaces right now. We're all confined to these spaces. And I was wondering what what gave you the idea to set a book in one space? It's really in one house only, and then a lot of things happen in that house. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't know that it was an idea to set it there. Uh, I mean, the whole way in which the novel grows, uh, and I spent eight years with it, so it had a lot of um, growing pains, Mm -hmm. uh, is mysterious in retrospect and also at the time. so I don't really know how to answer that, except that that's what happened.
0: Um, yeah, and it, 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 you're taken into this museum, of which there are many in New York City, these uh, former residences by people- And either, elsewhere. And elsewhere, all over the yeah. world. Yeah. And, and what you see is kind of a frozen life told through objects. Right. And you witness, and this this man who you have here um, as the person who leaves this legacy, leaves this bequest to the public, so they can enter this home where he's amassed this an amazing collection of objects, um, reveals parts of his life, but not all of his life. Um, and I just thought it was. Remarkable how you took us into the space in the opening chapter. We're all basically lining up the readers and the guests (laughs) uh, outside a little bit sort of disheveled group uh, gathering access to this, um, a little bit of a kind of a sort of chamber of miracles, a kind of wunderkammer of where we're going to see someone reveal um, what they thought was important in their life and what we are supposed to think about their life in retrospect so I love that you're taken into this into this novel as if you're entering a contained museum space and then you're taking us as if the novel is taking us on a tour along with the caretaker before we even know he is really going to be one of the protagonists mm-hmm. um, so as the readers we are taken into this space and uh, I was really intrigued that the caretaker actually becomes one of the main figures in this book. In the beginning, you think he is the secondary person.
1: Oh, that's interesting because um, one of the things about that character before I had even written the book uh, was that this was someone who I mean, I've always been fascinated by those people at institutions who are really the, the engine of the institution and nobody sort of recognizes them, but they have such an intimate um, knowledge and uh, appreciation and affection for what they're keeping going that the people at the top are taking all their credit.
0: Uh, Yeah, Yeah. and you have this great um, story where the the board of trustees, this very prestigious board with the widow of the man whose house we're visiting, they're Mm -hmm. presiding in this very um, forbidding interview process that the caretaker applies. And for him, this is a life's calling. So he has been completely taken with the man whose house we're visiting.
1: Right. Yes.
0: And it's it's interesting that you have these two different lives, the caretaker, the person, like you just said, the people who tend to be overlooked in museum spaces and in these kinds of spaces. And he is in relation to the man whose museum we're visiting, whose life is so public and so large, but contains some issues and some 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 darkness and some secrets that we don't know about. But the relation between the two is really interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and the caretaker himself uh, has never met this man he's so devoted to, except through what the man has written, um, Dr. Morgan. Um, and so his, so it's, it's a little ambiguous as to whether his uh, – how much of that relationship is with himself, the caretaker with himself, Uh, through his imaginings about the man he admires so much.
0: Um, Right, Right. And Dr. Morgan, in your book, has published a book, Stuff. The book is called Stuff, which has inspired entire academic fields. So it served to explain sociology, economics, art history, collection, museums, because he's explained why how we relate to things is a key to how humanity really operates.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his, uh, his, Dr. Morgan's philosophy is that uh, an object, any object, be it man-made or nature-made and be it humble or revered, possesses and exudes, Uh, its history and where it's been and who's touched it and who's thought things about it. But essentially in Morgan's mind, these objects are mute and inarticulate until the intervention of a curator can uh, put them in relationship to one another, at which point they become eloquent. I'm speaking of Morgan's philosophy
0: now. Right, but it's... it's I mean, it's found... It's, I was thinking of this idea that an object carries its own history. Yeah. Um, like a secret or kind of... There's a kind of auratic dimension. There's this whole idea that objects have this aura. I actually once researched this, that um, when the German archaeologists dug out a lot of the the ruins of Greek, of the city of Troy, et cetera, they actually truly believed that when these things touched the air for the first time in thousands of yeah. years, hmm. this aura emanated really quickly and dissipated, and it would be lost in museums. And the, the art critic Walter Benjamin made this one of his principles of art criticism that he thought an object has its history imbued, the human touch, the human meanings attached to it. And museums tend to lose that because they're sitting it in a white walled yeah. gallery. Mm-hmm in your in your book, these objects are set explicitly in relation in this house. so when you constructed the philosophy for Dr. Morgan, I was think are you do you believe yourself that sort of objects attain their meaning or retain their meaning when they're put in relation to other objects if when we see them, let's say in a museum or in someone's home
1: um I guess I sort of do, although I think there are a lot of things in this book uh, about which I could be on either side. Yeah, Um, yeah. uh, But I'm a complete believer in the opposites. Uh, (laughs) uh, But let me think about that a minute. Um, Yes, I I do in a lot of ways. And I also think that their, their intrinsic meaning can be, if not destroyed, at least uh, made more mute, if that's possible, by being in the wrong relationships with other objects. But Yeah. yeah,
0: go on. Yeah, no, exactly. I'm thinking about any object that we value, whether it gets placed in the museum or whether it's in our personal lives, if it's taken out of its original context, it can attain a deeper meaning mm. in, a, in a new context, or it could lose its meaning.
1: Right, yeah.
0: And start to also just look like a torn out and sort of it's place somewhere in relation. And now it looks like something, it looks, it actually it looks like very little. It doesn't have its own, it doesn't carry its own weight, its own history anymore.
1: And when, uh, when an object is made too precious, it also becomes uh, less itself.
0: Right. I think that's when we go to the, to the big museums in Metropolitan and we see mm-hmm. a ring or something that's several thousand years old. It looks like a little tiny scrap of metal, doesn't even look so finely wrought. But for the people of the time, it probably carried enormous significance. And for us, it just looks like this little tiny band. <laughs> um, uh, but the Dr. Morgan's house museum, it's not just precious objects, right? He also has... Right completely uh, what we would think random or arbitrary things. Yes. And, and so his
1: brush or a, a, a telephone cord or yes.
0: And Then in the novel so he, um, he suffers a kind of unexpected sudden death and then his uh, widow takes over to turn his the museum and the house where he's lived she hasn't spent really time there with him anymore during the decades of their marriage turns it into a museum people can visit and see. So we see these objects, the toothbrush next to a very precious, there's actually one object in the in the galleries that's so precious, but suffers this terrible fate. I thought that was a very funny and <laughs> devastating, <laughs> devastating moment, actually. <laughs> oh, you wicked man. <laughs> yeah, well, it, 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 looked, it, felt, it felt to me like... Um, in a film, like a slow motion kind of scene mm, where yeah. something terrible happens yeah. <laughs> and, this, and this woman just does something, maybe thoughtless, maybe intentional, we will never quite know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and something is destroyed forever. And, I, and this is where we get the caretaker's attachment to Dr. Morgan's philosophy, that he thinks when this, this, this object is ripped out of its context or damaged, something shifts that's much greater than that object itself.
1: Right. Yes. Yes. And and it does destroy the um, sort of the meaning of where that object was standing and what it stood for.
0: Right. Right. And the whole equilibrium of the house. I think once you're in the uh-huh. book, you start to think this whole house is like its own little universe. And I I love the the fact that the book takes place really in a few rooms in one a brownstone or townhouse or something like that in New York and it unfolds. So we have this dramatic scene and then we have the other dramatic moments, which I thought you were really um, beautiful at putting these dramatic moments in, in this very subtle way. So there's a hint of a revelation of something in the interview process that completely stops everybody in their tracks. Mm. (laughs) And then the caretaker gets hired not right, and there I thought the book did something in addition to talking about how objects convey so our attachment to them. It also talks about how we want to thought about ourselves after we die. So it talks about how we curate our own memory,
1: mm, mm-hmm.
0: and the book is very concerned with that: how we want to be remembered. So Dr. Morgan, who wrote this book about stuff and became very famous, and he became unfamous. So he's a, he's a he's a renowned writer inspired lots of people he wants to curate his legacy in his memory and and i was wondering why do we actually do that why do we actually care do you think that what people think of us after we're dead when when mostly we will not know this
1: especially as 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 it says somewhere in the book uh you know the non-believers uh who don't think they're looking down
0: Right, exactly.
1: Yes, and they don't get to enjoy uh, their total failure at um, at uh, managing their posthumous existence.
0: So they are, and there are those who believe that we'll be up in heaven or somewhere and we'll, we'll realize how we are remembered. I'm not one of those people, unfortunately. So I, think
1: I'm I'm not either.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But, but in the book, it's, it's interesting because what you're also saying, even if you're not a believer, how you curate your own memory, of course has an impact on those around you and on everybody else. So it's not just a kind of selfish idea to say, I want to be remembered like this, but he, this man has influenced many people. He leaves a widow um, and they have a complicated relationship, let's say, but all of their lives will be impacted by how he is remembered.
1: Yes. And I think it's probably for him, it's not so much his own being remembered, but what he has made which he thinks is terribly important for all the rest of us. Um, and so he's uh, trying to protect it against all the assaults he knows uh, it will be subjected to.
0: The museum itself, you know. The museum and the reputation, and he sort of implores his, his, his wife, his widow, says, you have to be steadfast do not listen to these detractors, to people who are trying to tear down my reputation or change it. So it's, it this is actually, we'll get to this in a moment. There's a shift yeah. because the caretaker sort of suddenly starts to take his own role in this kind of legacy. Right. <laughs> but before that, I I like your, um, as a narrator, I like your ambivalence about this project that Dr. Morgan thinks his life is so incredibly important. And there was, a lot of humor, I thought, in how you depict the collection, that some things are just sublime and incredible and really magical, and some things are just so mundane that you think, uh, do they really matter? And the caretaker, who is such um, a groupie, basically, he's just uh, he in his <laughs> <Yeah>. whole... <laughs> to say something about that, I always felt... Um, I know academics like that who get obsessed with one book and think it's the key to the world. And Mm. they're those, they they think, I don't know, William Blake's mythologies or uh, Lacan or something like that. It's like the key to the world and they see everything through one lens. And the caretaker who was drifting through life feels that Dr. Morgan gave him some grounding in the world.
1: Yes. Um, I mean, that's very important, the caretaker's own uh, personal history and sense of wandering and searching for something to believe in. And uh, I think there's a lot in the book that that sort of threads its way between faith and superstition. Um, and... Maybe the book doesn't even know which is exactly which. But if the caretaker weren't so um, vulnerable by being at a loss, uh, then he might not have been so passionate when he encountered Morgan's work.
0: Right. And his vulnerability, I think, is not that he's a particular type of kind of person who's adrift, but is that all of us want some kind of framework Mm -hmm. to understand life. Yes, And he just exemplifies, and he said, faith and superstition, this could be organized faith shared with others, or superstition as a kind of personal set of that there's a greater force in life, Um, that there's something more meaningful. And for him, Dr. Morgan is the one who identified there's something greater than one individual being, one individual human being.
1: Yeah, right.
0: (laughs) And it's interesting that the museum is not an art museum; it's not all objects of art. Where we think, where a lot of people, I think, believe that meaning is produced by the creation of art, that it gives us a greater sense of humanity in the world. But your museum is filled with all sorts of Uh, things—stuff that actually—that's the title of the (laughs) project. Not you too, huh? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So the idea that he curates his afterlife, his posthumous existence. um, There's a very complicated relationship between him and his wife, his widow now. Yes.
1: Um,
0: And I was wondering what you thought is the relationship between a couple when she is living out his legacy in a way. She's the widow. She's the chairwoman of this board or an executive member of this board of overseers of the museum. And she has an investment in keeping his reputation um, intact and in a certain way,
1: right? And she she's also attempting to make his um, his personal life and activities part of the museum um, to sort of uh, what do I want to say uh, almost like. Uh, f- put it in glass or uh, uh, immobilize it in some fashion. Um, And, you know, people do do that often with uh, people they care about who have died. Um, The room stays the same, you know? Right, uh, As though the person might at any moment return, which is very much the way uh, Morgan's study is now curated, not just by the wife, that was her idea, but now by the caretaker who kind of keeps alive.
0: And originally the caretaker is brought in as this um, kind of default choice. He makes a pitch to get the job um, since he's aware of some difficulties in this legacy and maintaining this kind of proper legacy and posthumous reputation, they hire him and in the first section of the book he's a very humble deferential custodian of this collection and then it seems to me he slowly becomes part of it he grows into it he gets more and more attached to all the objects Um, he starts to become very protective of them and the little group of visitors which I always found myself in this group of visitors as a reader. I thought I'm in this museum and there's also a moment I get you, which is, <laughs> which, is, which is quite dramatic when you can't get out. When the, So the caretaker becomes not just the guardian of the legacy, but he's guarding the place that he found for himself, that his life now has meaning.
1: Ah, uh, yes. Uh-huh. Right.
0: So he is like when you said earlier, those people in museums or collections or galleries who are not always recognized, who really care for their collection, really do all the work, they can also identify to a point that this is theirs.
1: It's yeah, and I think they do, and and they may be right, for all we know.
0: <laughs> in what sense? How do you mean? Uh,
1: they may be right that this is theirs, because, um, because being in service to a vision like that uh, is very different from the people who run the place. And, you know, I'm thinking also, I I don't know why this image came to me, but like the chef in the White House, for example, who survives, Right. uh, maybe this isn't even true, but I think of the chef as surviving all the changes in administration and there they are still. Uh, and they know things nobody else knows about the place.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So they're protecting something larger than whoever is in power right, right now. Exactly. Whoever, whoever pays for it right now. Um, and the caretaker becomes this person who is a guard, a custodian. Um, and he's also deeply impacted by the fact that he is allowed to be in the presence of Dr. Morgan's sort of the, the, the air he breathed, the, the floor he walked on. Um, and it's interesting because when the, when the book opens, he seems almost ambivalent about letting any visitors into the building.
1: Huh <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm wondering about that. I'm not sure about that.
0: Uh, like, I, I was just wondering when you just said the people who start to Will really identify with a collection or an institution? Let's say, right. They're, they're, right. They, you know, they're the guards at I don't know Federal Hall or the Library of Congress or some such thing, or you mm-hmm. know, any, any of the museums. That the visitors are, they're there to appreciate the collection. They're also a potential disruption and a threat. They're, they're yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Right, because he seems to be so at home in this home, which is not his home, and these, and then you give us this assemblage of people who walk in, half of them more or less just stumbled across this place and thought, oh, it's a house museum, I'll take an hour or so and check it out. And he thinks you have to have the reverence like going to church or temple. This is a really, really sublime place.
1: And he, yeah, and he feels it's going to change everybody's life if they can only like sub- submit themselves to what it has to tell and he uh, he's pretty frustrated when that doesn't happen
0: to the visitors right however then they kind of as the plot thickens he will make them all be in a situation where he says your life is going to change no matter what. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And, And I thought this was kind of a great sort of existentialist moment in the book. I thought of the caretaker the whole time. He's sort of, he's trying to find meaning in life. I said this to you last week when we talked, he's like one of the characters in Kafka who keeps on looking and looking and looking for some kind of greater meaning and he doesn't realize that the search itself is already the point of it all. <laughs> that, <laughs> like, by just looking, you've already uh, sort of found your you found your purpose in life by the mm-hmm. search. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. And Kafka, there's so many characters who walk around, and they, you think you already got it. The the fact that you're walking around with a purpose—that is the goal. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so then he has these this group of people in, and then. Uh, he wants to not just have them have an experience, he wants to give them that experience. He wants to say, I'm gonna make you understand how important it is to be in the setup of this room where all these objects are related to each other.
1: Yes, I mean, he has been there for many years. And so he's been conducting these tours for many years. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, history piling up in him. Uh but the, the moment in the book, yes.
0: There's a lot of history. He has his investment. He also has um, probably started to identify a bit with the house that it's his museum now, as much <laughs> as Dr. Morgan's, right?
1: Mm, yeah, yeah, although I'm not sure it's a it's a contest. Um, uh, I think he still feels himself to be the servant but what he's serving may be in part himself, so. (laughs)
0: Uh And he's serving um, something we don't quite know. It's the legacy of a man who was a a great mind and a great collector, but it's this legacy, of course, only exists if someone actually curates it.
1: Right, yes, right.
0: So I think this is also part of the book that you're saying we enter museum spaces, we enter lots of formal spaces, they are actually not alive without somebody who curates them and who takes care and who guides us through them. So I was wondering about this, that the caretaker also assumes this function of make, keeping the collection alive for everybody because he has such an investment in it.
1: Yes, he feels that he's essential to it.
0: Yeah, I've, I mean, I felt that way too, I, as, as strange as he is. Uh, really a very strange person. Uh, strange, I felt without him, there would be no collection because he also now knows more than anybody else about the relation between these objects.
1: Right, yes, that's true, yes.
0: And then there's the scene where um, he keeps um, the, the, the the visitors in a situation where they are somehow compelled to reveal something about themselves, it's it's a really striking scene. I thought where they almost they're doing it kind of against their will. They say we could just walk out and leave, but they all reveal something about themselves. And I wonder whether yeah.
1: Well, in retrospect, I I began to think that was uh, that had a little bit to do with politics, that they become. Uh, more impotent by being a group Mm -hmm. than if they were individuals. Mm -hmm. So uh, their relationship to one another is kind of um, paralyzing to what their actual impulses might be. Um, But this was an
0: afterthought, you know, I thought, oh. (laughs) Yeah, but that's actually quite interesting that helps me because I saw this group. It's a very small group. Um, and they all kind of are sort of asked by this caretaker to participate in this kind of sort of, to say something about themselves, give them an object, um, whatever they have to do. And because they're mutually look at each other and I say, what is the next one going to do? And if the one, the first one does something, the other one say, maybe I'll have to do this to get out of this. I think you're yeah. right. There's a kind of group pressure, um, and it's very subtle. And I like the fact that you just thought about it maybe after you finished a novel that it's a political moment. It's very subtle because it's not totally clear why we would do something when we're standing in a group that on our own, we would never dream of doing.
1: Right, right. I, I mean, I agree with you. It was quite a surprise to me to, to see that that's what had happened. And this whole relationship to things, to writing it, um, which I don't know if it's many writers experience or not, but uh, you're 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 kind of following some. This is not like the character takes over and speaks, and you know I'm just a vehicle for the character to speak. But there's something about the sentences that are imperious and that say as they sit on the page you know, this, this needs a qualification or it doesn't sound right or, and that's almost what makes the plot. Again, I'm speaking in, in retrospect, but, um, but in that sense, I feel, I guess a little bit like the caretaker as a servant of this thing that isn't quite me and over which I don't necessarily have power.
0: Right, no, I can, you sense a little bit about it. It's a very beautifully written book and there's a sense of a kind of very quiet logic that's underneath that is not character driven, not plot driven. Even there's two kind of rather dramatic secrets that are sort of hinted at or revealed in the book, but it's not um, that you think it's, driven forward by what has to happen next, but Mm -hmm. every sentence kind of sinks in and says, this is the logic of what happens now, Mm. right? It's more an atmosphere and the whole house. And so, because I read it, of course, you know, I sort of, I was taken into this house museum. I thought this house changes people when people are in this. And what I really, I think experienced was when you're in the novel, you're kind of subjected to a very subtle logic of the novel working its way rather than these people who are who are not none of them were really totally in control of what they're doing, it seems.
1: Yeah, right.
0: You know, we could say they're ambivalent or they're, you know, sort of choosing things, but they're actually doing things. And you can't just say he's doing this because of this, because the caretaker he's ambitious or he identifies. I said he doesn't totally identify. He doesn't want to take the place of Dr. Morgan. Right. He knows he's in the service of something larger. He also creates this larger sense by now being the most knowledgeable person, but he's not even aware that he's created the sense to which he's now indebted.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it.
0: Right. Right. He becomes sort of the the mind and the the memory of the whole place, but he doesn't know that he's the memory of that place. Mm. (laughs) And,
1: I, I'm going back to something you said about uh, Morgan wanting his uh, reputation preserved. I think in a way the the opposite is true. He wants his reputation destroyed in order to have his posthumous identity protected. So he he doesn't want his wife to... Sort of clean up his reputation or or make him look good after the fact he he wants to um, be set free from his reputation in fact um, maybe by even at the cost of being maligned
0: oh interesting because that would then. Because you think that would not
1: be him. It would not be him,
0: and um,
1: yeah, I think that's what I
0: have to say. It would not be him, and then his life's work. So the book and the collection would just live on.
1: Oh right, yes, and not have to, not have to be tied to his person.
0: That Lex is going kind to of make me reread it now because there's a very oh, good
1: that will be number four
0: <laughs> exactly, number four. But it's very complicated what he wants his wife or widow to do, and then the caretaker also thinks he now has this role to. And this is what you just said there now that makes sense. The caretaker thinks maybe if i entirely rewrite or destroy the biography i will actually make him kind of eternal i will then create this image mm-hmm.
1: of him yeah yeah
0: and there is a kind of intervention where the caretaker intervenes in the the in the biography or the the idea of who dr morgan is i thought there was a really uh, unexpected fantastic thing that happened toward the sort of the third part of the novel where the the caretaker is not at all passive, but right. he's also not entirely active. He's sort of, he thinks he's acting in the right way. And we think as readers, this is completely transgressive, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I get a sense. You did not think it was such a terrible thing that he's taking out a sheet of paper and starting to to add to this idea of who Dr. Morgan was.
1: <laughs> uh. No, I wasn't thinking in terms of terrible or, or, or good. Um, I was just going along for the ride.
0: <laughs> this is very clear. This is, I think when when we're in the caretakers, he, he's now in Dr. Morgan's study, and he's dressing in Dr. Morgan's suit, the British suit with a colorful tie, in the suit where he actually died. There you were really having fun. <laughs> I thought there was a kind of because there you have this um the living person the caretaker who was supposed to be this humble guy who just got the job to you know basically dust and to, you know keep the security in a museum and the larger than life dead philosopher and then the same space they are suddenly in the same room and he's sitting at his desk and he's writing something mm-hmm. and you I thought there was kind of these these two People, one is dead, was very famous, larger than life. The other one is alive and didn't have a very successful life. They're they're meeting in the same space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why I thought the writing was really um, very powerful and strangely moving because you could feel the the caretaker sort of trembling with the excitement that he's both channeling Dr. Morgan and also finding his own voice.
1: Yes, and... and, uh... Not sure which is which.
0: Right, 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 right. Yeah. yeah, and it's and it's nice because it's set sort of in there. I think it's set on the, in the the top floor of the house or something. There's a little bit of a kind of uh, very subtle sort of. I really thought he's channeling. He's not channeling a voice. He's actually writing for the first time. Maybe what he thinks Doctor Morgan would have said.
1: Right, I think that's true. I I've always thought that. Uh, that one becomes one becomes oneself out of finding outside of you uh, someone you admire and emulating them. And your failure to be them is your becoming yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, I thought this about Bob Dylan, for instance.
0: In what sense?
1: Um, That he uh, you know that he loved uh, someone and was emulating someone and uh, couldn't quite get there. Right. And that's a creative force that uh, and, and it's not clear if what Again, I I guess it seems to me very much like the the way it occurs in the book um, that uh, that the admiration may be for the vision of yourself that you haven't fulfilled and that's how you become. But it has to be a search for something outside yourself Mm -hmm. or you wouldn't Mm -hmm.
0: be able to do it. And do you think this first phase of the, the adulation where you really admire someone or something is that grounded in reality that this other thing or a person is so great, or is it also your projection? You're setting up this ideal of this amazing. A little
1: bit of both, I think.
0: Yeah. Um, I think
1: it's very personal. And in that sense, it's you, um, and to what degree you're um, muddying the reality of the other person in order to do that, um, I don't know the answer.
0: And in the case of someone like Bob Dylan, do you think there is a recognition, does it have to be termed in terms of a failure, I can't reach this goal, or is it a deviation saying, I realize I'll be something else? You know what I mean?
1: Well, I think um, uh, failures to do what you think you want to achieve are very useful. Um, So in that sense, I like to think of it as a failure. Uh, You know, you would forget about Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan has his own life and is his own person. Um, but, uh, But this impulse to Aspire to be someone you admire yeah. is, is kind of doomed to failure. You don't become that person. Yeah. Um, and in that sense, I think you find a path, but I don't think you say, now I'm going to be me because right. I can't be the other person. I, I think you uh, the admiration itself is a kind of um, engine
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've always thought I've always thought this too. They are kind of nice examples. So Ralph Ellison, the author of *Invisible Man*, he copied down in longhand Hemingway to sort uh-huh. of not to become Hemingway in a mm-hmm. way, but he thought the rhythm of those sentences was really working. And then at some moment, clearly, he wrote his own, you know, masterpiece. But th- there's a sense in which. To reach for something outside of yourself, rather than thinking I already have my own ideal in within me.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and there is something about uh, copying things down um, that is this very um, just the sort of relationship I was talking about about those those forgotten people who keep mm-hmm. institutions alive. Um, and it's a physical way of kind of um emulating and feeling what it feels like to put the pen to paper and make those words and you do kind of almost get there and the caretaker does that too
0: <laughs> right right at <laughs> Just the like end of fellison <laughs> at the end of the book um Were you sad to leave the caretaker in his uh, or because to me, he seemed to have gone through um, a kind of epic journey. There's sort of there's two crises. There is a catastrophe (laughs) with this object. um, And then in this moment, when you just described, this is really interesting. He may find himself precisely because he cannot be Dr. Morgan.
1: Hmm. I didn't think of that, but, but yeah, having said what I just said, you're
0: right. Yeah. Yeah. What you just said, how he, he, there is a kind of hero worship and fascination of the great man. um, And in the beginning we think, oh, there's this little man, he's never going to reach to these heights, but in that moment, um, which I think is really brilliant. He may be himself, in a scene where you thought, oh, he's he's just the servant to this house museum. And you said, No, that's actually how someone can become himself in yeah. In, yeah. In, in relation to this greatness. Here. Yeah. Do you have any particular museums you like yourselves? You go through museums differently after writing the book and looking at objects and thinking, what's the the person standing next to them really think?
1: <laughs> no, I don't really think about the people who are visiting. <laughs> I, don't really have, I don't remember thinking about other visitors, but I have gone to a number of those house museums in the course of writing it, I guess, and maybe even before. I'm, I'm really not sure. Uh, and I, I like the ones that feel like they've the collection has been invented by someone for some reason that we don't really know um,
0: that has its own voice right it has its own voice and it is a little bit like you said earlier it's um <clears throat> it's a life put under glass um, yeah and it's and it's yeah it also it's and there's also almost always something somewhat arbitrary because Death is arbitrary for most of us, so in some ways it cuts. <laughs> yes, <laughs>
1: for most of us, like that.
0: <laughs> For most of us, right? Then, then there's a, there's a, the house museums that I've been to, what I found amazing, they become different every single day because the more they recede into history, into the past, the more this past looks like the past to us. If it was opened four years ago, you think it looks like a home that we would know. If it's opened, if it was opened 120 years ago, we think, wow, this is you know, a different world. So a museum, of course, changes through time, whereas art museums may not change in that same way. Huh. Because a life was differently 100 years ago. So if, if a museum, if, if, if someone's home, Mark Twain's home became a museum in 1904, whatever it was, whatever the date is, that's different than a museum that was opened in 2004.
1: Uh, Yeah, right.
0: (laughs) Because life is very different. Um, So uh, this is your first novel, right? Yes. Yeah, so it's really a remarkable achievement. I was so uh, happy with it to discover it and to get it (laughs) early. And um, it really was a way to transport me into another world that seemed so close to me. I felt like I could walk to 21st Street or wherever it was and walk into this house, but then I was in a completely different space.
1: <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> really I wonderful. Mean, one, of the, one of the tremendous pleasures of um, publishing it, I guess, uh, is that it it comes back at me, Sounding different and with things I didn't think of about it, and uh, so it's it's great to be with some of you. Read it four times; it's almost as many as I did.
0: Three, oh, no, three, three so far, and I reread it now to rediscover the relationship between the widow. Um, but for our listeners. You know, read it. I, I didn't want to give away. I didn't want to spoil. The, you know, the plot twist. But there's something very dramatic that happens, and then, <laughs> and there's a kind of dark revelation that's really masterfully sort of becomes a point. And as I said, it never drives the plot in a kind of gratuitous way. There's nothing sensational. This happens. No, this happens. Although some of these things are pretty dramatic, um, and uh, I love a book that can create an entire world in such a small physical space with such odd people. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> they're art in, in, in the best possible way. So, so, <laughs> well, aren't we all? <laughs> this may well be true, but I can tell you doing that not all the books I read recognize that people are odd. There are a lot of people, there are a lot of people in books who seem like people you've seen before. That's not really that would not really be something I would want to read for.
1: <laughs> well, it's, it's great to have you as a reader. Thank you.
0: <laughs> so thank thank you so much, and uh, good luck with the book. And um, you know, I'll read it the fourth time, and um, I'm I'm sure a lot of people will pick it up and uh, enjoy this visit to the museum. So it's the caretaker by June Orbis Thank you, June, so much for being on the show. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you.